Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today's episode is Vegan 2.0, featuring an interview with someone who's got a really interesting background in law, food policy, and activism. And on top of all of that, she writes a fantastic vegan food blog. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to Chef Demoni Vegan 2.0. The vegan theme is going to continue today, but before we get to the interview, a couple of housekeeping matters. First, I'm happy to report that Chef Demoni is more widely available now. You can find it, as always, on the Chef Demoni website, but also on iTunes, on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And with that wider distribution, of course, comes a request that will be familiar to those of you who listen to a lot of podcasts. Please, please review the show and please rate the show. Doing that helps other people find Cheftimony. So if you like it, I'd really, really appreciate a review and a rating. All right, now to today's episode. We're going to get right to an interview with Anna Pippis, someone with a really interesting background. I met Anna through Karen McCarthy, who you heard from last time on the Vegan 1.0 episode. And Anna has done and continues to do a lot of great stuff in the vegan space. Her work includes time as a food writer, time as a food lawyer. It includes animal activism and currently a very busy schedule developing and sharing vegan recipes and information through her site, easyanimalfree.com. I was really happy to talk to Anna about the whole Cheesegate controversy, and if you missed the last episode, Vegan 1.0, that controversy centered around Blue Heron Creamery, which is a vegan cheese producer here in Vancouver, and a complaint to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and that the CFIA has a requirement that anything called cheese conform to a very precise definition. Cheese has to be made out of the lacteal secretions of mammary glands of certain ruminants, cows and goats. So what is a vegan cheese producer to do? Anna and I have a great talk about current labeling requirements and whether calling plant-based cheeses cheese really causes any confusion in the marketplace. We have been getting along just fine with products like coconut milk that we buy in cans and pour into curries and products like peanut butter that we you know, spread onto toast. And nobody is confusing that with the butter, that's the lacteal secretion from the mammary <laughs> gland. Right, um, right. We recognize that, okay, it's buttery, like butter. It's got a buttery texture, but it's made from peanuts. People understand that. And same thing with coconut milk. Right, milky. It's sort of like an opaque white liquid. I get it. We also have a talk about veganism more generally, why it's important to Anna and just how far it extends for her. Part of why I eat the way I eat is it's political. It's not just about mm-hmm. not just about my own sort of feelings about it, but it's an active boycott of the system. I'm not so delusional to think that avoiding, you know, eggs and a muffin once in a while is going to totally change the world, but it's being part of a broader movement and of a broader belief system. We also chat about a real motivation for Anna's work, and that is to share practical tips for incorporating animal-free food into busy daily life. Beautiful food photos are great and all, but Anna understands that what people really need are practical steps and often quick recipes to get dinner on the table. And that includes cooking vegan meals for the whole family. Anna and her husband have young kids, and I asked her whether her children eat a vegan diet as well. As you'll hear, the answer is a very definite yes. My kids have been vegan since birth, since conception, really, because they were vegan. You know, I was vegan throughout pregnancy, and my husband right. and I were both vegan at conception, so it's vegan sperm, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's as vegan as you can get. 
Okay, that's enough information from me. Let's head into the interview now. At the end of her talk, Anna shares a couple of her best tips for cooking plant-based food, including her go-to sauce recipe. And I can tell you, I've tried it, and it is both quick and delicious. You don't want to miss it. Here's my talk with food writer, food lawyer, recipe developer, and food blogger, Anna Pippis. So I'm joined this morning. I'm really happy to be speaking with Anna Pippis, who shares my interest both in food and in law. She's got a background as a lawyer and as a food advocate and somebody who lives and breathes the food world. So Anna, first of all, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for joining me for Chef Timoni. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Can you tell the listeners a bit, just as an introduction, how you got into veganism? Because it wasn't always the way you were eating. And I know that from looking at your online presence from your Instagram, or no, from your website, I think, Mm -hmm. that you went through a transition first to vegetarianism and then to veganism. So tell us how that happened. Yeah, that's right. So when I was a kid, I was about 10 years old, and I just announced to my parents that I wanted to go vegetarian. And none of us really remember a lot about the circumstances. I think what happened was that I met a vegetarian and realized that it was possible. And I was a huge animal lover as a kid. I had a really strong connection with animals. I loved horses and cats and hamsters. I had pets and I felt a really strong connection with them. I could relate to them and I had very deep, meaningful relationships with them. And when I heard that vegetarianism was a thing, I was like, oh yeah, no, I don't want to eat animals either. I love animals. And it was a very sort of simple simple calculation like that. But I didn't know the first thing about food and it wasn't really part of my identity. I worked in the food business for many years, like working in restaurants to, you know, as many young people do from when I was about 15 to 25. So I was always around meat and it didn't bother me. I was the only vegetarian I knew and it wasn't a big deal. Fortunately, because my parents were so supportive, it never really felt like that big of a deal. Then when I was a little bit older and sort of a similar thing happened, I heard about vegan and I you know, went, oh, what's that? Not eating dairy and, and eggs. And I was a big, I mean, cheese was a huge part of my diet. I loved cheese. It was kind of a running joke in my family that if I came over to visit anyone, their cheese would disappear because I would eat it all. <laughs> and I really was into like gourmet cheeses. I would go to cheese shops and just, you know, try everything. And I was really, really, really a cheeseaholic. So it was challenging for me to even entertain the idea of not eating cheese. That seems to be something I hear from friends who are vegans and something I've just encountered online reading about it. That seems to be what people miss the most. Nobody seems to, you know, really crave that ribeye or the chicken wings, but the the cheese seems to be the thing. Yeah, I hear all the time people say I could never give up cheese. And I think I probably said that at one point too. It turned out to me to actually be pretty easy because once I learned about the dairy industry, I really lost my appetite for it. So it wasn't Mm. like I, I didn't really struggle with it. I was really disturbed by the idea of cows and calves being separated at birth and knowing that this happens even on certified humane farms and organic farms. I was just so horrified that I can remember actually my husband, you know, had very kindly prepared some mac and cheese, which was a dish that we created early on in our marriage 10 years ago. And I couldn't, it was like a lump in my throat. I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't eat it. It made me feel like crying because I was just picturing the calves. So it actually ended up being pretty easy for me. Even in those days, there was actually no vegan cheese really. But yeah, it ended up being just kind of like a very natural progression for me 
once I became more aware of the industry, although it took a long time for me to open my heart and to open my mind to what was going on. I sort of knew there was going to be something I wouldn't like and avoided the information. And then when I dove into it, it was like, okay, I was ready. Right, right. It's interesting. I had a discussion a few years ago with a friend who who had brought some eggs over to my place and we were doing some cooking. And she made a comment about, oh, these are free range eggs. So they're great, humane, safe, whatever. And I said, oh, what do you mean by that? She said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what does free range mean? And she said, Mm. well, free range. And I said, well, it may mean something different than you think it means. And Mm. uh, she was quite surprised and said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, it really depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. And it was interesting because she then started doing some research and wound up basically where you are. Mm-hmm. and is just no longer able to consume virtually all animal products. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can happen once you look into it. I mean, for me, it was like, and I, I think about it sometimes now still, like, would I eat animal foods now? Like, am I, I just sort of as a mental exercise. And I always come back to the same place of like, I just can't imagine being in the grocery store and like choosing between two products. And with eggs, this situation is like, no matter how good they are, there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be, you know, the ma- the male chicks are unneeded in the egg industry and all of the hens are killed sort of at a fraction of their natural lifespan. And slaughterhouses are terrifying. I've, right. you know, I've been around a lot of undercover footage and they're just, and I just, I can never quite get there. I'm just like, eggs are just not that necessary or delicious to me to surpass like my sort of revulsion at what's happening in the industry. Right. Could it be for you, it sounds like the motivation for you in very large part is animal rights issues, as opposed to, I know some people have concerns about, you know, cholesterol contents or whatever, sort of more the impact on us as humans of animal products. So for you, could it work or would it work? And maybe it's just not of interest to you if you had, say, if you raised chickens in your backyard and, and had the eggs and knew exactly how they were treated. Yeah, I've thought about that. And for me right now, the answer is still no. And the reason is, there are two reasons. One is that even if you were to sort of purchase a heritage breed chicken, you're still dealing with some of the problems of breeding, you know, and you're still kind of contributing to, there's, of course, much, much less suffering. And certainly it's a much better solution. But, or then I think, okay, well, you know, I have friends who have hens who are rescued from battery farms, you know, Rhode Island Reds or or the White Leghorns, these chickens that lay 350 eggs per year you know, they, if you rescue them, there's no problems with breeding and they would have died anyway. So you're giving them a home. And then what's, you know, why not eat their eggs? And there's two reasons that I wouldn't. One is that because these chickens are bred to lay so many eggs, it's very hard on their bodies. All of those eggs come out with all of those nutrients in the yolk and all of the calcium in the shells. So they can become very nutrient deficient very easily. This is true of all reproduction. And so when we breed like sort of rampant reproduction into animals, it's very hard on their bodies. And so what my friends do who have these rescued hens is they feed the eggs back to the chickens. They just give them the nutrients right back. Oh, interesting. And the other reason is that as a vegan advocate, I want to be a living example of vegan being healthy. And so I don't want to say to people, well, I can eat eggs because I have the privilege of being able to sure. you know, keep my own chickens. And But you, you know, you can't eat eggs because you can only afford to go to the grocery store and buy the $2 egg. So I don't want to, I mean, part of why I eat the way I eat is it's political. It's not just about, mm-hmm. not just about my own sort of feelings about it, but it's an active boycott of the system. I'm not so delusional to think that avoiding, you know, eggs and 
and a muffin once in a while is going to totally change the world, but it's being part of a broader movement and of a broader belief system that says, you know, I'm going to boycott this system overall. The word that comes to mind for me is mindful. So it sounds to me like it's a health issues aside, even animal rights issues aside, although those are motivating factors, it's a practice that you're engaged in. Exactly. I mean, it's living in alignment with my values. And to get back to what you said earlier about animals, it's totally, it was, and you know, remains totally about animals for me. When I went vegan and when I went vegetarian, it wasn't known at that time that predominantly plant-based diets were decisively associated with better health. Actually, it was the opposite. It was like, well, can this be healthy? And I was seeking out resources for how to do it healthfully. So, I mean, certainly now as I, you know, get into up there into my 30s and I'm feeling great and have no trouble maintaining weight. And same thing with my parents who are eating very similar to how I eat and they're really active and energetic. Yes, I'm definitely starting to appreciate the health benefits. But the truth is you don't need to be vegan to be healthy. You can certainly have a plant strong diet, eat lots of fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains. And you can include some animal products in a diet like that and be perfectly healthy. So health doesn't really get you all the way to needing to sort of adopt this lifestyle of veganism. And how about your kids? Are they eating completely vegan diet? Yeah, so our family is totally vegan. My kids have been vegan since birth, since conception, really, because they were vegan. You know, I was vegan throughout pregnancy, and my husband right. and I were both vegan at conception, so it's vegan sperm, too. It's <laughs> <laughs> as vegan as you can get. <laughs> but yeah, they're really healthy. Sometimes people sort of, you know, have the courage to ask, well, how can you, you know, impose your values on your kids? And, you know, I just say, like, where parenting is is making decisions for people and it's making decisions around values of how we eat and religion and education and you know what clothing we'll purchase for them. So to raise children is to make value-based decisions for them and we impart our values onto them. And our values around veganism are not just around food, but they're around treating others the way that we want to be treated, around living with integrity, standing up for what we believe in, even when it's not always popular. So I think it's very much in alignment with you know positive parenting practices. Sure, sure. And the reality is, I think that whatever choices people make, I mean, if you're eating an omnivore diet and feeding your children an omnivore diet, you're imposing yeah. your values on your kids. Exactly. Right? exactly. It's just that sometimes the values are invisible. And so I think you're exactly right. And that's where logic gets you is, well, wait a minute, these are always choices just because they're the dominant choices and they're invisible to us doesn't mean they're any less of a choice. Well, let's move, Anna, into some of the work that you've done in this space. And before we get there, maybe you can tell the listeners a bit about your background, your educational background, because it seems really interesting to me. You've got, as I understand, it, an undergraduate background in psychology. Mm-hmm. And like me, you did a law degree. So please tell mm-hmm. us about those and how you've used those educational tools in your work. Sure. So I did a, yes, a psychology degree, graduated from UBC, and I was really interested in people and understanding people. And I thought at one point that I might want to be a counselor. And in the course of that education, I started volunteering at a place called Women Against Violence Against Women. And I worked my way up to become an employee and I was doing rape crisis counseling. So I was working, dealing with women who had been assaulted in some way. And so I would meet them at the hospital to be the counselor present there when they were receiving a rape kit, or I would staff the crisis line and doing that kind of work. And in the course of that work, I realized that a lot of problems we face as a society are really 
political problems, legal problems. A lot of the women that I were was seeing, probably half of the women that I was seeing were from the downtown east side. And that was no coincidence. These were women who were marginalized and who were it was kind of inevitable that they were going to end up where they were. And I thought that that was a result of bad policies. So that's where my interest in law school came up. I thought, I want to go to the root of this problem and see what we can do about solving the problem. Not just for for the work that I was doing with women, because although that work was deeply meaningful, it never felt like my life's purpose, my life's mission. But my life's purpose was to have a positive impact. And so that's kind of what compelled me to go to law school. And in law school, even before I went to law school, I always said, I don't I'm not really going to be a lawyer. Like It was never really about that. It was more just getting the, I was compelled by a curiosity and a motivation to want to have a positive impact. And I thought law would be a good thing to study to get me there. It was very much like an intuitive sense. And when I was there, again, I wasn't really focused on on animals so much as I was just focused on learning about how I could have a positive impact. And to that end, I worked for the three years of law school, I worked for our refugee clinic doing refugee case files. And I also had a job as a research assistant for my law school's reproductive and sexual health law program. University of Toronto has a fantastic reproductive and sexual health law program research group. And so I was lucky to be employed by them. And I also at this time was delving really deeply into animal rights, animal issues, the philosophy of animal liberation, and just, you know, the idea that animal rights is a movement in the same way that civil rights and women's rights and all of these rights movements, it's an extension of that. The idea that, you know, every being with sentience, everyone in our society should have rights and should not be trampling over people's interests simply because we can. And that idea resonated very strongly with me, especially when I was 25. And <laughs> thought I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've softened a lot since then. But certainly at that time, I had a very strong sense of fairness. I mean, I still do, although I, I've just come to see the gray in life a little bit more than I did back then. But it was very clear to me that this was a really important social justice movement that was underserved. You know, even a lot of my, I mean, everybody in law school is progressive. I'm sure you experience that too. Right. Just everybody. And even amongst my progressive friends, it was like the idea that animals could be included in that consideration was like pretty radical. And I was like, well, why? Like, what's the difference? Like, right. Sure, they, you know, they can't vote and they're not going to the moon, but who cares? Like rights aren't based on what you accomplish. Rights are based on your ability to experience physical and emotional suffering. And rights are based on things that are totally irrelevant to your species. This is kind of what I was reading and what I was motivated by. And it just seemed totally clear to me. And so that's why I ended up in animal rights of all places is because I thought, if I want to have an impact, this is the place to have it because so many hundreds of millions of animals are suffering right here in Canada. This is not an overseas issue and their suffering is profound. I mean, we're not talking about like hurt feelings. We're talking about from birth until death. These are lives of horrible misery and deprivation. And at the same time, it's very socially acceptable. So even, you know, after I used to always kind of think like after a day of working at the rape crisis center, I wouldn't come home to people sort of casually talking about sexual assault and making light of it or worse yet participating it. But with animal rights, I thought it's really all around us. We are all casually participating in this horrible, horrible oppression and cruelty towards animals. And it's totally socially accepted. Right. We've got to change that. Right, right. Do you think so two questions there. One, do you think the social acceptance is based on 
And I was about to say, I hope for, and maybe that is still the phrase, although it's not a good thing, but I kind of hope it's based on ignorance. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, first of all, I think things have changed a lot in the 10 years. So I'm talking about what I was thinking sure. you know, 10 years ago when I was seeing these things for the first time. So I do think the conversation has really changed a lot. Yes. It's totally based on ignorance. It's based on also a sort of a willful ignorance because like me, it was like, okay, if I go down this cheese rabbit hole, I know I'm not going to like what I find out. At the end of the day. <laughs> the end, and so I avoided it. And I think we're all like that. And look, I just want to be clear, like I'm not, I'm not judging anybody for where they are. I totally understand that everybody has different values and priorities and everybody has different life circumstances. So I'm sharing my story and how I saw things and how I see things. But I totally respect everybody making the best decision for themselves, you know, at the present time. I think you're right. There is some willful belief blindness among people because, you know, it just doesn't make sense that, you know, hamburger A can cost 99 cents, right? Like that mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. happening on the backs of somebody, probably employees, definitely employees animals. Employees as well. Absolutely. I always think that like, if you look at like a rotisserie chicken, like that was a, an egg that needed to be fertilized, then that transported to a hatchery, then hatched, then shipped to a chicken farm, then raised for five weeks, then shipped to a slaughterhouse, then slaughtered, then packaged, shipped to the grocery store and cooked for right. what is it like $10? Like right. how, you know, how does that happen? And then of course, the way that that happens is by severely compromising animal welfare and by underpaying and exploiting the workers who are doing this sort of dangerous underpaid work. Okay. I think I'm off chicken for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm no fun to talk to. I just yeah, ruin I everyone's you. appetite. <laughs> I tell you. And can you talk about that a bit, Anna? The I read in one interview you had given your comments about the legal framework not being so much intentionally cruel, but that it just grew up in a system so that laws never were enacted. So in respect of animals, right? so that what we're living with, or I guess more to the point what the animals are living with now mm. legally is kind of a wild west. Yeah, exactly. So our animal cruelty laws, we have a few, but they're primarily general in nature. And they just say, you know, you can't permit animals to be in distress, or you can't cause unnecessary suffering or this kind of thing. And if you look at our the criminal code, in particular, our criminal laws, they're very centered around sort of cattle as property. So we didn't really have a system whereby farmers said, or, you know, the government said, okay, we need to feed a hungry nation and we need to do this by creating more economic viability in animal agriculture. Let's create some animal protection rules around that. That's really not what happened. What happened was that the farm industry started creating these farming systems at a time when animals really were not on our radar. I mean, we were doing much more terribly on even human issues than we are now. And certainly the idea that we should be protecting animals for their own sake was just really not part of the dominant public consciousness. So then we had a situation where we, we had this farming system already in place. We did not have animal welfare farming regulations. And then the public started to learn about how animals are being treated and not liking it. And so now we're trying to make these animal cruelty laws that really were not designed to deal with the institutional treatment of animals. It's like putting a square peg into a round hole. And so we've seen, you know, through work that I've been exposed to, we've seen the inside of many dozens of facilities. And what I've learned is that wherever you go, you will see 
animal cruelty and animal neglect. And it's not because farmers are sadistic people, you know, that are intentionally harming animals, but it's because the systems are designed to not be great for animals. When you're dealing with so many hundreds of millions of animals, just as a margin of error, there are going to be times when things don't work. Anna, two names of organizations that stand out to me on your resume, and maybe you can uh, just tell us about your work with them. And you'd mentioned some undercover footage. I'm curious how that translates into policy work or other legal work. But I've Mm -hmm. seen your name associated with animal justice as director Mm -hmm. of farmed animal advocacy. And I think more recently with the plant-based policy center. So can Mm -hmm. you talk about those organizations and and your work with them? Sure. So um, with animal justice, the work was really more focused on farmed animal welfare. So many people are surprised to learn that the government is not regulating animal welfare conditions on farms. Welfare is regulated in transport and at slaughter but not on farms. So part of the work there is really to expose what's happening to animals, to get it into the public conversation, to push for more and better laws pertaining to how farmed animals are treated, and to push for the enforcement of existing laws. So although we don't have a really good legal system for farmed animal welfare, we don't have nothing. So there still are the general provincial and federal animal cruelty laws that generally permit cruelty to animals, whether they're cats, dogs, or pigs. And so there is some work to be done there on lobbying law enforcement to actually enforce laws. And so and often that comes by way of an undercover expose. So an employment-based investigation wherein somebody will get a job at a facility and go in wired with a hidden camera and just let the camera roll. And like I said, like you always undercover footage that you can make a case is illegal. I've never experienced a situation where everything is in order. It's Right. I, I can't imagine that happening. It's usually rampant. It's usually within the first five minutes of rolling. Oh, dear. There are things that are animal cruelty violations. So the work there was really about focusing on trying to change those systems. And the work with the Plant-Based Policy Center is more about food. So, you know, I think I started to see that when it comes to how animals are treated, the industry is so integrated into the political system. They're really, really good at lobbying politicians and they've really ingrained their own system of regulation. So they are, it's a self, animal agriculture is self-regulated for the most part. And it's so, it's so hard to change that. (laughs) And people don't want to talk about animal cruelty. I mean, it's like nobody really wants to know about it. Even people who are put off by it and who've decided to go, like nobody wants to sit through this footage. It sucks. It sucks to watch. And so, and I think I just kind of came to a point where I realized this is really swimming upstream when really, if we're focusing on food, we can work with people. We're at a point now where we recognize that plant-based, plant-strong diets are good for health, good for the environment, and of course, good for the animals. And so we can work with people. There's so much work that can be done. And of course, when people eat more plants, they're eating fewer animals and there is less animal suffering. And so I think the work with Plant-Based Policy Center was just me sort of throwing up my hands and going, all right, let's focus on solutions. Let's work with Health Canada, which is less corrupt. Let's work from an environmental point of view, because we know we need to eat fewer animal foods to mitigate climate change. And let's work with people on feeling great by eating, you know, far more plants in their diets. And instead of saying, hey, individuals, why don't you take it upon yourselves to eat more legumes? And they're like, I don't know how, I don't even know what a legume is. We work with people to change policies. So it's about creating systemic change around plant-based policies. So there should always be access to healthy plant-based options in schools and government facilities, 
governments should lead by serving healthy plant-based options at government, you know, sponsored events. There should not be such heavy industry lobbying in schools right now. The dairy industry, the chicken industry, I mean, all these industries are handing out coloring books and stuff to children. And there's like a dairy mural at the, on the wall of the school that's in our catchment area here. So there's a lot of work to be done on a policy level around shifting the playing field to be much more friendly towards plant-based eating. That makes it easier for everyone to eat in a way that's going to be much better for ourselves, much better for the planet, and much better for the animals. And that leads me to my question about what I've taken to calling Cheesegate, and it, because it's, it's all tied up with, I think, with powerful interest groups, with lobbying, and with the current structure, I guess, both at Health Canada and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, Mm -hmm. which, as I understand it, is sort of the enforcement arm. Yes. But I was speaking with Karen McCarthy of Blue Heron Cheese. And of course, there was that article in the Globe and Mail recently about the CFIA, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, having some concern about the use of the word cheese associated with a non-dairy product. So maybe you can give us your take on that and whether something needs to change and if so, how it might. Right. Okay. So this is another case of regulations being created before, you know, in a different context and not really being suited to the context we now find ourselves in to modern times. So the food and drug regulations defined milk as being the lacteal secretion from a mammary gland. And then it specifically says, you know, genus bovine or whatever, cow. And then it sets out a specific exemption for goats, for goat's milk. And then all derivatives of milk, so cheese, yogurt, sour cream, all of these kinds of foods are also defined, you know, by reference to this definition of milk as the lacteal secretions from mammary glands. So this worked just fine in the 70s when nobody was nobody in Canada was drinking almond milk. But of course, in the last few decades, things have dramatically changed and the regulations no longer really suit the current climate. And, you know, it's interesting because we have been getting along just fine with products like coconut milk that we buy in cans and pour into curries and products like peanut butter that we, you know, spread onto toast. And nobody is confusing that with the butter, that's the lacteal secretion from the mammary <laughs> gland. Right, um, right. We recognize that, okay, it's buttery, like butter. It's got a buttery texture, but it's made from peanuts. People understand that. And same thing with coconut milk. Right, milky. It's sort of like an opaque white liquid. I get it. Right. From right. coconuts. But when it comes to soy milk and almond milk and coconut yogurt and whatever, all of these different products that are becoming so popular nowadays, these are a more direct threat to the dairy industry. And the CFIA, for its part, which is the enforcement agency for these regulations, they operate via complaints. Certainly, if I were the dairy industry, I would make a part of my business to file complaints against plant-based non-dairy products for using the word milk or cheese or whatever it may be to describe their product. And I think that probably, you know, what I think needs to happen is the regulations just need to change. They need to be rewritten for the year 2019 in an environment that is dominated by plant-based milks and plant-based non-dairy products. I mean, the point of the regulations is to avoid consumer deception and it's to create clarity. It's not to trademark 
the word milk for the dairy industry to protect the dairy industry. They're strictly about companies communicating with consumers and vice versa. It's really a communication issue. And so in the case of like vegan companies, like they're not creating dairy products and trying to deceive consumers into thinking that this is milk or butter. Right. On the contrary, Quite the opposite. it's the opposite. This is a selling feature. They're trying to say, hey, like buy this vegan non-dairy product that's not made from cows. Hey guys, this is not the lacteal secretion from mammary. Good news. So, so it's clear that what the CFIA is doing and how they're enforcing the laws are really just out of step with the consumer marketplace. I mean, it's clear to me anyway. Some people can certainly, reasonable people can disagree on this. But from what I've seen as both a food lawyer and a vegan person living in the world, it's kind of a ridiculous situation. And I think that when companies are not allowed to use these words, it creates more confusion because I can go and I can look at a you know, milk is easy. Milk, it comes in a carton. But when it comes to something like a cultured cashew spread, well, is that supposed to be used like cream cheese? Is that supposed right. to be used like sour cream? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. I, I, and so without using the familiar words that we're all used to and, and using these words that I'm able to relate into my existing schema in the way that I use the English language to describe food products, I can't clearly understand what this product is. And so it's really preventing consumers from understanding what they're buying and preventing companies from communicating with consumers. So to take Blue Heron, for example, it's no big secret that this is a vegan cheese company. Again, this is their big selling feature. This is their competitive advantage. So nowhere on their site or on their packaging is it like, oh, they're trying to pass this off as cheese from cows. They're just trying to use cheese or creamery or cream to communicate what this product, like how this product is used and what role it can play in a consumer's diet. Right, right. And it's interesting because having just spoken with Karen, really, it seems to me that the genesis of Blue Heron came from her work as the executive chef at Gray's, the vegetarian Mm. restaurant on Fraser Street. And Mm -hmm. because she wasn't satisfied with the vegan options that were there for a cheese board, she wanted to put together like a cheese board to end a meal with and there just wasn't anything there. So she had to come up with an alternative. (laughs) Yeah, vegan cheese has really come a long way in recent years, and it's certainly in large part to pioneers like Karen, who are saying, you know, we're not going to be satisfied by a block of rubbery, like, you know, whatever, I don't even know (laughs) what the the vegan cheese 1.0, I'm not even sure what it was, but it was definitely for people who are desperate or didn't like food or both. Right. (laughs) But modern vegan cheese, I mean, this is like creamy, rich, healthy food. It's cultured, it's complex, it's delicious. It's something that you can serve to anyone at any time. And, you know, and it will be satisfying to people, even cheese lovers, even reformed cheese even lovers. Reformed like cheese lovers. Yeah. yeah. So times are definitely really changing. And of course, you can see now, now that this is such a booming area that we really need the regulations to be updated to reflect what's actually happening in the marketplace. Right. And do you see a glimmer of hope? And I guess it sounds like a very leading question because I think I do. And I I see that based around recent changes to the Canada Food Guide, right? It seems to me mm-hmm. that was a, a difference in kind from previous versions of the Canada Food Guide, notwithstanding mm-hmm. the current and you know uh, ongoing strength of the dairy industry. It seems mm-hmm. that the government was open to some change there. Yeah, the new Canada Food Guide is a real departure from previous food guides. One of the big changes is that they did not sit down with industry this time. They decided to really follow the evidence and to create a useful 
dynamic food guide that could be used by diverse groups and that would really reflect the state of the evidence instead of trying to promote the commercial interests of the industry. And by the way, the agriculture industry really was vehemently opposed to these changes and they even held their own hearings trying to get the government to force Health Canada to consider the economic interests of the animal agriculture industry in the food guide. So sit with that for a minute. I mean, this is the agriculture industry saying, let's compromise people's health. Let's ignore the evidence if it's going to be good business for our, you know, agriculture companies, which is not necessarily going to trickle down to the small farmers. I mean, we're really talking about protecting the commercial interests of a very strong industry. Well, let's shift to, I think, a more upbeat topic, which is, <laughs> although it, it addresses the same issues, and that's your website, Easy Animal Free. Mm-hmm. And that talks about being providing real-life recipes, strategies, tips, and info to help you eat more plants. So, right. to, yeah, so please tell the listeners about Easy Animal Free and what your goals are with it. Sure. Well, I, you can probably see by now that it was a very natural next step for me sure. to provide solutions for people just trying to live in their everyday lives. And I found that in my work as an animal lawyer, as an animal advocate, I and because I know a lot of lawyers, people who can think pretty sort of rationally about things, I was encountering a lot of people who were like, yeah, you're right. This is terrible. But like, what am I going to eat? Right. <laughs> um, it's terrible, but I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, but I like I'm immoral sometimes. I drink too much and I eat a terrible diet. Like, what do you want? (laughs) And so I found that people really needed solutions. And I also thought there are so many recipes and cookbooks out there. But well, for one thing, I wasn't seeing a lot of resources that are talking about, but like, yeah, but like, what do you have for lunch? Like, (laughs) you know, and like, what do you make when you only have 10 minutes or something like that, when you're not cooking from a recipe? So I tried to provide that. And also just because, you know, we can all be contributing our own unique voice and spin on things. And I thought, well, I love food and I have a very satisfying, balanced, nutritious, delicious diet. So I'm just going to show people what I'm eating. I'll just create an Instagram account and I'll just take pictures of the food I'm making. And it really evolved from that. People started responding to it and I started getting truly countless messages from people saying that it had made a big difference in their lives, that they used the resource all the time and And I created the website to go along with it so that I could share longer form things and recipes and just have things be a little bit more organized than the Instagram account. And it's really grown from there. And I have big plans to focus more on that. And I'm talking with a publisher about creating a book version of it. And so it's just kind of all developing organically. And also just for me personally, I found working on the animal side of things to be, you know, quite disheartening at times. You're seeing a lot of cruelty and a lot of corruption politically and a lot of sort of public apathy. And it was hard not to feel disconnected from society. And that's not a place I like to be. I love people and I love the world and I want the best for everyone. And I think shifting gears a bit to work more in the realm of solutions and working with people was really important for me, for my mental well-being, for me spiritually, was to be able to provide this kind of work. Well, I think that's a great balance because you have done and continue to do what what I'll call the heavy lifting side of the work, Right. right? With watching those awful videos undercover work and then tackling the tough policy discussions. But I agree that you can get mired in, you know, I've always done in my legal practice litigation and it's great. It's interesting. It's satisfying, but you're always dealing with a problem, right? With conflict. (laughs) Yes. With conflict and a problem. So it's nice to see the flip side, which is, as you say, finding solutions. Right. And I think that also the two really do go hand in hand because you don't change regulations without public 
public buy-in. So, you know, if the government doesn't need to focus on an issue, it won't. It focuses on an issue when the public wants it to. And so by teaching people how to, you know, realistically eat more plants in their everyday busy family-dominated lives, that's helping people to become more invested in the government taking action on some of these issues. And also just for me, it's really expanded beyond the animal stuff. Like I think, you know, like I mentioned, like for me, it was always more about having an impact. And now as I get older and as I have children of my own, I do care very deeply about climate change and the environment and and people's health. Like I want people to feel great and to live lives that feel rich and meaningful. And a part of that is being fueled by healthy plant-based diets. Now, not entirely plant-based diets, but certainly eating more vegetables and whole grains and fruits and and legumes is going to be good for everyone. And I really do care about that. So instead of, yeah, duking it out on the on the conflict side of things, it's like, let's pave the way for creating some of these policy changes, because I still do very much believe in the idea that we need to create systemic changes and changes don't shouldn't be driven by the individuals. But the reality is that by opening up these doors for these individuals, we're going to pave the way towards better health and environmental and food and animal welfare policy. Can you give the listeners a recipe? And it's something I've asked this question of uh, chefs and the use of the word recipe is even a strong word. But what's something that you can describe in 30 seconds that somebody can make in 10 minutes? That's a delicious meal. Okay, so my top go-to for a fast lunch, especially a pantry-friendly one towards the end of the week, is chickpea flour. You can whisk up chickpea flour with water to make a pancake or a crepe. You can either fry it on the stove or you can bake or slash broil it in the oven. And this kind of dish goes by many names globally in France. It's called soca. In Italy, it's called farinata. In India, it might be called pudla or go by other names. So this idea of a chickpea flour pancake or crepe, it's very versatile. Of course, it's very nutritious being just ground chickpeas super flavorful. You can have it with salad, maybe some fresh bread if you want it or or like it. And yeah, and it takes five minutes. It's just whisk and pour. (laughs) Whisk, pour and cook. I love it. Whisk and pour. Yeah. Very easy. Terrific. Well, listen, Anna, just a couple more questions and um, looking really for some resources and tips for the Cheftimony listeners. Clearly, you do a lot of cooking at home. I know you even cook on vacation. I was reading about that on your site. But when you do indulge in a dinner out, where are some spots you like to go? Well, because I do cook so much at home, I like to go out for meals that I wouldn't normally cook on my own. And often it's something celebratory. So we might be meeting friends or family. So my favorite place to go is Pokong. It's a Chinese vegetarian restaurant on Kingsway. It used to be on Main Street back in the day, but now it's on Kingsway. And it's a really extensive menu of delicious Chinese food with lots of different kind of like mock meats, I guess you could call them, which the Chinese have been perfecting for many centuries now and I just do a really great job with. So that's probably a topic. There's also, I mean, it's kind of depending on what you're in the mood for. I love chow, veggie express. Oh, yes, yes, on Victoria. They've got really rich flavors. Yeah, on Victoria. And they've also got a location in the Granville Island Market. Chickpea on Main Street just introduced a new brunch and they have a fantastic smoked carrot, smoked carrot Benny with lots of rich, complex flavors, sour pickled vegetables and creamy house-made labna, vegan labna, delicious. And I also really love a good standby for just good old comfort food is always the meat restaurants. They've got meat in Yaletown, meat in Gastown, meat on Maine. That's a really great place to bring, especially people who are new to veganism and who might only think of it as being salads, which to be totally honest, it is for me. It is a lot. lot (laughs) I eat a lot of vegetables because I feel best that way. But 
sometimes you just want to, you know, go all out and have that decadent kind of meal and meat is a great place for delivering on that. And just a really beautiful environment as well. Great, beautiful decor and good hospitality. Right, right. It's interesting you mentioned because I've gone there with my friend who veered into veganism or toward veganism after the egg discussion we had. And uh, yeah, and I've loved it because it's definitely the way we've done it anyway. It's as a treat destination. So that's where you can go for a beer and some nachos. Totally. Yeah, it's nice to sometimes, especially for people who are new to the idea of veganism, it's nice to show, you know, what the possibilities are that this food can be very satisfying and and decadent as well. So if we revert back to the cooking at home side of things, any Mm -hmm. tips, tricks, pieces of equipment, anything that you find works particularly well for cooking the food that you do? Yes. Okay. So two things. One is that when it comes to approaching the plate and mealtime, the formula that works for animal foods, sort of the meat starch veg formula, that doesn't really work for plant-based cooking because we're not swapping out the meat for a pile of beans or, you know, even a plate of tofu. We're actually approaching the plate in a different way. So for me, that looks like a bowl. This is one of my go-to meals at home. You have a grain, like maybe brown rice or quinoa or millet, something like that or even noodles, soba noodles or something like that. And then you add a legume. So it might be pinto beans sautéed and cooked with garlic and spices and broken down a little bit with the back of the fork, so nice and saucy. Or you could sauté some white beans with garlic and lemon for a bit of a more Mediterranean twist. I like to make lentils marinated in a red wine vinaigrette. So you've got your grain, your legume, tofu, of course, tempeh, these kinds of foods that are so delicious and convenient. And then you pile on your veg. It could be roasted vegetables. It could be a salad. It could be a combination, whatever you have. And then toppings. I like to use roasted nuts. I toast pumpkin seeds or walnuts, or sometimes I just use tamari roasted almonds and chop them up and put them on top. You can use toasted sesame seeds, anything, anything at all. It's the world is your oyster. And then some kind of sauce if there's not enough sauce already in it. So sometimes what you've already added will be flavorful enough. But if you need a little something more, a go-to sauce for me is a tahini lemon sauce, just very simple tahini, fresh lemon and a bit of water to thin it out and some salt. And you can pour that on for added flavor. So it's just a different approach to the plate. And the second thing I would say is that when you're trying to swap out meat, you need to understand the role that meat plays. So meat is not really anything to write home about on its own. Meat becomes delicious by how it's prepared with a marinade or with spices or with the cooking techniques. What meat really adds to a dish is fat and umami, savoriness. So you can add fat and savoriness in another way. Use olive oil, use a drizzle of olive oil, you know, use some other kind of fattiness, avocado or nuts and seeds. You can make a delicious cream sauce very easily by just blending any kind of nut or seed with water in your blender. Cashews are a good one because they're so neutral and mild, but I make cream sauces from pecans, walnuts, a mixture. I make cream sauces from hemp seeds, from sunflower seeds, anything. If it's a nut or a seed, it is going in my blender and getting turned into a cream sauce. (laughs) And mix them up too. Like pecans have a nice earthiness, which can go well with cashews or hemp seeds are super nutritious, but on their own, they can be a bit grassy. So do different combinations. So that's your fat. And then for umami, just understand what plant-based foods have umami. Mushrooms, tomato sauce. We use nutritional yeast, which is like a vegan staple. It's kind of cheesy. It looks a bit like fish food, but don't let that put you off because it's super delicious and adds a lot of great flavor to different things. So yeah, so just seek out those sources of umami, vinegar, balsamic vinegar is another great one for that kind of thing. And then, and make sure that you're replacing the fat and the umami. I mean, if you're making a lentil soup that has no fat in it, it'll be just 
finish it with a drizzle of olive oil. It's going to be much more satisfying and leave you feeling satiated. It's going to taste better. It's going to have better mouthfeel. And it's going to be better for you because you're going to be absorbing those fat-soluble vitamins in the food anyway. Right, right. Absolutely. You're, you're actually improving the healthfulness of the dish as well. Exactly, exactly. We do need some good healthy fats in our diet. And when people go vegan, I think sometimes if they're trying to eat super healthfully, they can end up with diets that are too low in fat. So yeah, I'm a big believer in using some oils in moderation. Olive oil is good antioxidant oil. Avocado oil can be heated to very high temperatures, you know, whatever, whatever you have, but just make sure that you're replacing that fat with something. Right, right. Wonderful. Okay. And a last question and coming back more to the policy education learning side of things, where would you direct uh, listeners who want to learn a bit more about either animal rights or vegan diet, all of the things that inspire you. Your website, first and foremost, I'll say. <laughs> yes, Easy Animal Free is a resource which I hope will grow and become more and more useful over time. And I think there's some useful stuff there now. And people can follow me on Instagram for more of the food side of things. As for what's happening with animals, um, people can check out animaljustice.ca or animalcharter.ca for information about what's happening with animals in Canada. Yeah, there's not really a lot of like great one-stop resources, but just generally... If you even look at resources that are from other parts of the world, modern day farming generally looks pretty similar from the European Union to the United States to Australia. A lot of similar kinds of things are happening. So yeah, any documentaries that you see are for the most part going to apply in Canada as well. And books that you read like Jonathan Safran Frower has a great one called Eating Animals. It's a little bit out of date now, as in written a few years ago, but it's still very relevant. And it's a, just a fantastic read. He's such a gifted writer. And he tells the story in such a very readable way about what's happening with animals in our modern food system. Well, listen, Anna, thanks so much. It's been wonderful to meet you over the computer. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, likewise. It's really fun chatting with you. And I hope we can connect again soon. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that talk. There are a whole lot of important, heavy issues related to veganism because veganism, I think, is about how we relate to other key players in our environment. Those players would be the animals, of course, but also the environment, the planet itself. But happily, there's lots of lighter stuff too, including, of course, the delicious food. My thanks to Anna for giving her time to share her thoughts with me and with you. I'll put links to Anna's blog in the show notes, and I really encourage you to head on over to that blog. You'll find lots of beautiful food there and also lots of really helpful information. As always, if you have a comment or a question for the show or a chef or a lawyer that you'd like to hear from, I'd love to hear from you. You can message me directly on Instagram or Facebook, or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. And please do take a minute to rate the show on your favorite podcast app, and if you like, write a review too. Both the ratings and the reviews will help other people find the show, and I'd really appreciate you doing that. All right, that's it for now. I'm Graham McLennan, and I look forward to seeing you next time, right here on Chef Demony. Chef